hear the word of the Lord. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Luke 17, 1 through 10. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, challenging texts like this one that uh, convict me just from the reading of it. Lord, I thank you for my friend Mike and the gifting that you've given him, the insight and the wisdom and the experience. But Lord, I, I would pray that this morning you would quiet his voice and magnify your own. And Lord, I, I pray that your spirit would fall upon us now, that you would be illuminating our minds and, our, and softening our hearts to receive your word this morning. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're continuing uh, our series at looking at the different parables. And then specifically today, uh, we'll be looking at the parable of the un, uh, unworthy servants. Uh, and so this was a little bit more difficult as I went through this initially. You might not jump out the page about what this is talking about. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the parable, which is verses 7 through 10. Then we're going to go back at the beginning of the verses and look in the context. So let's look at verses 7 through 10 to start off with. Uh, Luke 17. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. Afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And I don't think it jumps out at the page, at least it didn't for me, but this parable is about how we relate to one another. It's in our relationships to one another. And so if we look back at verse 1, we'll start to see the context of this. Verse 1, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So relating to one another in our relationships as we interact with one another, 
there is a principle here that Jesus has given us. He's telling us not to be surprised when temptation comes, not to be surprised by it. But he also says it's going to happen, and, and don't also do not be the one through whom temptation comes. Uh, in other words, don't be an influence on the ones uh, who you interact with. Don't be the ones that entices or causes other people to sin. And so the other side of that is this. In everyday life, in all of our relationships, promote and encourage faithfulness. He goes on to say, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So on the other side of that spectrum, not only are we not to entice people to, to sin, but if we're ever the victim of sin, what is our response to be? Forgiveness. If they sin against me once, forgive them. If they sin against me twice, if they had a really bad day, maybe three times, but what Jesus is talking here, we're talking about four, five, six, seven times. And what basically what Jesus is telling us, anytime sin is followed by repentance, that repentance is to be met with unlimited forgiveness. So before we spend the next 30 minutes talking about relationships, I want to make one caveat, one little disclaimer as we're talking about this. Um, the, extension, the, the extension of forgiveness assumes two things. First of all, that the person uh, that has sinned against you is humble enough to, to receive a rebuke, so for, uh, to receive that rebuke, and also they love Jesus enough to repent. So I'm not saying a relationship and where someone would use a verse like this and say, you have to continue to forgive me because this is what the Bible would say. That is not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness does not entice people to sin. Forgiveness instead draws people to Jesus. And at no point can we use a verse like this to, to, to use it as a, an attack. It does not enable the habitual attack against the image of God. What Jesus is saying is that where there is a process of sin, of rebuke and repentance, we are ready and eager to meet that repentance with forgiveness. And that's the command that Jesus put in front of all of us. In our normative, everyday life, we are to extend faithfulness on our best days and forgiveness on our worst days. As a parent to your children, is the sum total of your influence faithfulness on the everyday and forgiveness on the worst days? As a spouse, as a friend, as a roommate, an employee, or an employer, is the sum total of your interactions with others faithfulness in the everyday and forgiveness in the worst day? And this is why I love the disciples' response to this, because, you know, that's when they say, like, Lord, we're going to need more faith for this, because what you're asking from us, we can't do. I mean, look, they said this, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And in essence, the disciples were saying, Jesus, we get what you're asking, we love you, but they're looking around these other disciples and thinking, but I don't know if that's the case for the other disciples. I don't know if that's the case for the way that I look at these guys. And not even on top of that, how about our enemies, Lord? Like, there is no way that my first response is going to be forgiveness, especially what you're asking for. So that whatever that is, Jesus, we're going to need more faith. 
And if I'm thinking about my life, and you're thinking about your life, I think this resonates with us, right? We can understand where the disciples were coming from because if anyone has experienced a seven sin rebuke, repent type of day, the cycle goes on seven times in a given day with someone you're close to, not even someone that is an enemy, but someone that you're close to, someone you're in relationship with, do you have it in you to meet them with forgiveness? One, two. If we're being honest, we wouldn't be quick to have the desire to forgive like Jesus is commanding us. And that is why I think it's important for us to unpack this parable. So how do we actually do it? And here's, here's, here's the big idea. The way we treat others is one of the greatest indications of whether or not we really believe the gospel. Let's unpack that. First, why is it so difficult to do what Christ has commanded us to do? Because our natural posture and relationships are to view them transactionally, okay? Um, so, and, and what Jesus seems to be scri- describing here is in a completely one-sided relationship. All, I, all they do is sin against me, and all I do is forgive them. And if that's the case, I'm definitely going to need more faith because the lens in which we see relationships is transactional. Let me explain. In every relationship that we have, spouses, friends, family, co-workers, in every relationship that we have, we view them transactionally. It's almost as if we had this bank account that's not necessarily filled with money, but instead it's filled with, with effort. It's filled with um, energy. It's filled with emotion. It's time and affection. And as I relate to others, I make withdrawals from that account and I spend it on that person. In my relationship with my spouse, I'm withdrawing love, withdrawing sacrifice, withdrawing time, and I'm trying to meet expectations. And all the while, I'm spending it all on my spouse. With my kids, I'm withdrawing patience. I'm withdrawing actual money, um, and I'm spending it on them. The same thing is true with my friends, with my people, I work with, with, with roommates. It's the same story. We all have this transactional mindset about relationships. And here's the reality. In a transactional relationship, in exchange for that, what do I get? What do I get? I get the same thing. When they reciprocate the, the, the patience, the sacrifice, the love, affection, and attention, what, what effect does that have? It, it builds that bank account back up. And it goes back and forth. Is it, I, I withdraw, deposit, withdraw, deposit, enabling me to continue to go through this. And so how then do we measure uh, where our relationship stands? If what I spend is about even in what I receive and in what I get back in deposit, things are fair. But if things aren't going well, it's because we feel like we're giving more than we're receiving, right? It's imbalanced. If I'm meeting your expectations and you're meeting mine, then things are right. But if you're not meeting mine, especially if I believe that I'm meeting yours, then we're going to have problems. Or it's because that all, all of our effort is pregnant with expectation. Expectation that applause, that attention, and affection will come as a response to our effort. 
when we think through our relationship to these kind of transactional lenses, we open ourselves up to, to consequence because we are easily offended. It doesn't take much for there to be disappointment and frustration because we're hyper aware of all of our withdrawals, which leads us to obsess over wondering, when am I going to get paid? So Emily and I have been married uh, for 11 years um, in May of last, so 11 years in May. So I've been married 11 years. And I look at the, the sum of our relationship. And if, if I'm being honest, the, for all of our conflict in 11 years, all of that would have been mitigated. All the issues would have not been there if it wasn't for the fact that I was half aware of everything that Emily does for me that I'm aware of what I did for Emily. I remember a time when uh, our, old, our youngest daughter was just born, Ada. Uh, so meant our, our oldest daughter was about four years old at the time. So Ella was four and Emily, I mean, Ada was just a couple months old. And so, you know, this is the first time that Emily got a chance to go outside the house and I was now home by myself for the first time with, with two little girls. Uh, and the craziest thing happened. They needed stuff from me. Um, that not only that, so they needed food, they needed, they needed diapers, they needed attention. Like some of these things, I can't believe they actually needed something for me. And so my, my, I'm, I'm just, I'm getting frustrated at these moments. Like I can't believe I'm doing all this stuff. Like I can't believe I'm babysitting. It's not called babysitting when you're parenting. There's a different thing, right? And so then Emily comes home. I finally get the girls to sleep. Emily comes home. And she has the audacity to, to say something to me with has the worst question she could ask me. She asked me, how are the kids doing? How are the kids doing? What are you talking? What do you mean? How am I doing? After you just abandoned me? Like you're wondering how, how the kids are doing? But in that moment, what was I doing? I was thinking all about me because in some sense I felt like I owed it. I wasn't thinking about her that four months before that, a couple months before that, while giving birth to Ada, that she dislocated her tailbone, has been in pain for months. I haven't been thinking about all the sleepless nights, all the feedings, but in that moment, did you bring me anything? Did you bring me like a plaque or a trophy or, or food or something just to build that up? Because I was thinking about me. And here's the thing. All that is just normative, everyday life. There's some iteration of that story with all of us. Um, our relationships with our spouses, our children, our job, friends, whatever that is. And I'm not even talking about what Jesus is talking about here. There is nobody on the face of the earth that I love more than my wife. But what Jesus is talking about here is forgiving our enemies. Like that's just a whole nother level. If that's the case, Jesus, I'm going to need more faith. I'm going to need more of something. And so Jesus tells this story in this parable. He says the, res the resources are there. You've just been looking for them in the wrong place. Let's look at verse 7 again. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he is coming to the from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Be patient for a moment because it's going to look like we're, we're changing the subject and we're not, okay? In this parable, who are we? We're the servant. And who's the master? It's God. This is a two-parable, uh, two-person two parable, two-character parable. Here's the point. You and I can't do anything to make God owe us anything. 
at what point does the master owe the servant anything? After being in the field all day, after making him food, there's no point in which the master owes the, server, it's the servant anything. It tells us that he's unworthy. And let me make that clear. When it says unworthy, the Greek word in here is not a reflection of, of the, the servant's character, but it's more of the standing in which the, the servant to the master. So it's the dynamic of the relationship uh, between the master and servant. And as a servant, there's never a scenario in which the master all of a sudden owes the servant something. That is the oldest statement is, is Genesis. All right? There's no point in which we owe God anything. God is not like the pagan gods. What we do for God can never put us in control of him. He cannot be swayed like the gods of the nations. You cannot build him a tower. tower. You cannot build him a, a temple that he's going to cause it to rain or going to keep you from dying. That's not going to happen. That's not our relationship with God. So Thomas Hooker was a 17th century pastor. He said it this way. Many think they have, a, they have a sovereign authority over Christ when they have served him. A man does not use these means to be led to Christ, but he takes up his service to be a commander of Christ, that he may use Christ for his own agenda. He makes Christ an aid to his own wickedness, not one that subdues his corruptions. This is a sneaky deceit when men rest their own abilities and so abuse Christ. It's as if we're trying to use God as a cosmic vending machine. You know, I, I put enough in, I put enough goodwill in, if I put enough uh, service in, then if I put the right numbers in, I push the button, out pops out what I want. This is not our relationship to God. The transaction has already, been taken has already taken place. The accounts have already been settled. We're his servants. When all of you and all you do, it already comes from and is owned by the master. It's not deposit and withdrawal. It's obedience because that's what a servant does. It's obedience motivated by the fact that we are unworthy slaves to God. So even as I say that last sentence, there's some unease in my heart as I talk about being unworthy slaves to God. There's some unease there. Um, there's some tension there. And I, I know it feels overbearing. It feels sterile. It's because it's not the only metaphor in which we see um, in our relationship to God. Because even a couple, a couple months ago, Ryan preached from Luke chapter 15 about the, the prodigal son. And the prodigal, we see the son come back uh, and he says he wants to be a servant to his father. Uh, and what's the father's response? Give him the, the ring that the son wears. Give him the robe that the son wears. You remember that, 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 that cow out back? We're having steak tonight. Because in essence, what he was saying, but, so our relationship, you're not a servant, but you're a son. And so that's what I love about this, because we also see this metaphor. Um, we have an identity before God, and that identity is that we are loved, and cherish and delighted in as children of God. And when God speaks about us in his word, one of the most common words is beloved in his sons, his daughters. It is, it is cherished. But in our relationship to God, the most common word used in the New Testament is doulos, is, is servant, slave. You think about Paul. In, every, in almost every book that Paul writes, and he starts off as saying, as a, as a servant, as a slave, to Christ. And he almost used it as, as like a badge of honor, like something to be proud of, and it is. Freedom is not the avoidance of service, it's the service to the right master. 
And that we've just, what we just learned about God is that he's the kind of master where his love for us is not contingent on our service to him. Listen to this. this, is what, this as I was going through this, this is the part that really just stuck with me and hit me. If our, if our obedience can make God owe us, if obedience could mean we deserve a favor for, from him, then failure to obey would mean that he is licensed to withhold love and to even punish us. Listen, we do not have the control over God that we think we do, nor do we want the control over God that we think we do. Here's where the verses 1-4 through four connect with relationship in this parable. It says, when you obey the command, what do you say? I've only done what a servant should do. Well, what command did we just give? Faithfulness in the everyday and forgiveness on the worst day. The preeminent role of a believer is to be a servant of God. When you give love or forgive, you don't look at that person and say, okay, what are you going to do for me now? So the relational resources don't come from one another. They come from God. When we love someone, even if that love is not reciprocated, we're not at a relational deficit because we did all of it as a servant of God. And therefore, nothing we can do can make God owe us anything. And so out of that relationship, as we interact, if we have that mentality that we have already been forgiven, the debt has already been paid, if that's our mentality as we interact with other people, um, it's okay if it's not reciprocated because we realize all those resources come directly from God to us. But I say that, though, did that solve anybody's problems? <laughs> no. <laughs> Anybody thinking, man, I need a lot more one-sided relationships now? No. My point is not do it for God and you'll be protected from frustration do it from God, and you'll never feel taken advantage of. That's extremely naive, and it's not the point, okay? But what I do know, and I bet you know, is that measuring the quality of relationships by my standards and my expectations put my relational hope in the hands of those who are just likely to fail me as I am to fail them. And I definitely know that putting the burden of my emotional and spiritual health on anyone not named God is a recipe for a lifetime of heartbreak and disappointment. It's an endless cycle of jumping from one would-be Savior to another. We will never be fully satisfied. If our Savior is anything other than Jesus, we will never be fully satisfied. We will never be complete. The point is, we're commanded to love, and you can't get away from people. So knowing this doesn't make us less needy. Instead, it directs our needs to the only one who can actually do something about it. Jesus models this in his life, and every time that he does, there's always something so compelling and so attractive about it. I think about when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They're all about to bail on him. One is about to curse him three times. One is about to, to um, betray him with a kiss. And he, as a servant, is cleaning dirt off their feet, not begrudgingly, but with a pure heart, with genuine love for them. And that's incredible. And this wasn't reciprocated. 
if we pay attention to Peter's story alone, we know Peter didn't earn this, okay? To have the depth of love to be able to hold the feet of the one who will run away, where does that come from? He got that from God, and he got those relational resources from the Father. And, of course, you're thinking, yeah, but he's Jesus. Of course, it's Jesus. That's, that was true for him, but not for us. But Jesus doesn't give the credit to himself. In John 16, 32, he says this, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet, I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. You see this over and over in Jesus' ministry, that he retreats to spend time with the Father, and then he comes back and he gives freely from what he has freely received from the Father. It is God who fills up that relational account that allows Jesus to put on display the perfect picture of humanity. I'm a long way from this, but I want to fight for this. I want, I want us as a church, I want my church, New City Church, to fight for this. Faithful every day and forgiveness on the worst day. Not relationally transactional with others, but relationally secure with God. And here's how we fight for this and we'll be done. We must discipline our hearts to be grateful for the gospel. Let me say that again. We must discipline our hearts to be grateful for the gospel. We come into a relationship with God every day and marvel at the fact that he has filled the account between him and us with the love that never runs out. We wake every morning and the first thought is, God, I remember what it was like to be lost, yet you saved me. Our accounts are filled with love that you purchased. It's filled with forgiveness that you initiated with me. That posture of gratitude connects us to a reality that never runs dry. So my dad, I remember this is, I was probably in college. Uh, and so one of the routines my dad and I would go, would go to this Chinese restaurant in a small town where I grew up in Florida. And this was like a hole-in-the-wall Chinese restaurant. The funny thing was, now we found out like years later, it was like the top 10 worst restaurants in the country. Like this is, you know, it was great. Like, you know, the one, the, the Chinese restaurants where there's no animals around the outside, those Chinese, those, that's where we were. And so, but we were there every time. Uh, so at, this was our, our normal routine because my dad worked at the college in which I attended. And so we would always go to lunch together. And so I remember one time in particular, we had the same wait, waiter and waitress, three people that there all the time. And my dad was talking to one of the, the, the waiters there, and he just said, hey, what's going on? You could just tell that his face, wasn't, his discountenance was not fully there. Um, and he just says, we're actually in the process of trying to adopt our, our first child, um, and it's coming to a point where we have to make the deposit, uh, and we, we just don't have it. And we're just feeling the weight of this. And so this is my dad asking. This is not some ploy like, hey, by the way, you know, I, I, if you want to support, that's not what this was. And so my dad says, how, how much do you need? And he says, well, we're, we're short about $900. He's like, all of a sudden, he pulls out his wallet and hands him $900. And I'm like, wait, first of all, Dad, where'd you get all that money from? I just, I just asked for, I'm paying for this lunch. And wait, what? But at that moment, at that moment, and, and basically my dad pulls out the money, hands him $900 in cash and says, go get your son, go get your daughter, go get your child. And at that moment... If my dad would have asked for anything, like a free meal, anything, how would have that man responded? Yes. 
his response would have come from a mindfulness of all that he had just been given, right? Is it not the same for us with God? There was an insurmountable price to pay for our sin, for our forgiveness to, re- to, be re- to reward love, to receive love. And if we're mindful of that, then the gratitude that we have for what he's rescued us from will spill over because with God, the account is full. First, and here are the two pervasive lies about that. First, I received it all from God, but it's not enough for me. Jesus makes this point in another parable that Ryan preached on um, from Matthew 18. It's a story of the ungrateful servant uh, who a, a, he owed a king 20 lifetimes um, worth of, of money. And so, you know, he goes into the, to the king. You guys know the story. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. He goes into with the king, pleads, begs for forgiveness, and he gets it. He gets 20 lifetimes worth of forgiveness from the king. And so that he walks outside. He sees a guy that owes him two years worth of, 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 of service. And what does he do? He says, no. He throws him in jail. But the thing is, that would make sense in that moment if, if the, the man who was just forgiven 20 lifetimes was walking in to meet the king and said, hey, I need that just because I got 20 years, I got, I got 20 lifetimes I got to make up just to get a head start. But it, it wasn't. It was when he was walking out. He could not extend mercy, even though he just received so much mercy. Because of that, the king calls him and says, you ungrateful servant, you were not mindful of what just happened to you, what I just did for you. And this is why the way we treat others is one of the greatest indications of whether or not we really believe the gospel. If I'm easily offended, defensive, or refuse to forgive, what I'm doing is acting as if the resources I have from God are not enough. See, we want to have the, the, the benefits of having our debts canceled, but not the requirement of extending that mercy to those who owe me, and that is not Christianity. The second lie is this, forgiveness isn't true for me. It's almost as if someone gives you an extremely expensive a necklace, a Rolex, something that you couldn't ever afford on your own, right? And so it's given to you and you take it, but as soon as you walk in the door, you put it into a drawer and say, I can, I can never wear something like that. Like, it's too nice. I can, I can never afford it. I don't deserve to wear something so beautiful. It's too valuable. It's too nice. And so you hide it in that drawer and it just sits there. How grateful are you going to be for that gift? Not very grateful. We aren't grateful for the gifts that we don't enjoy. And the truth is the thing cutting you off from wearing that gift is this. It's based on a belief you've made about the gift and a belief that you've made about yourself. It's so easy for us to treat God the same way. I believe it not enough to throw it away, but I don't believe it enough to wear it everywhere I go. I don't believe it enough to walk boldly that this covers me, that this is true about me, that the account is full. And since I don't believe that, I become relationally needy. So the discipline, and yes, it is a discipline of putting our hearts in a place of gratitude. The first step is a constant laying down of pride. 
both the pride that says it's not enough for me and the pride that says I don't deserve it, which in essence are two ways of saying I believe what I think about me is more important than what I believe about, what God says about me. We only get there by spending time with God, and that's what Jesus models. He gets a way to spend time with God. If we, if we never pull away from the chaos of the social, we will only be mindful of all the relationships and all these accounts that we have to carry. But to pull away and to sit, to reflect, to dwell, and to give thanks, God reminds us that our account is full. He's the God that extends faithfulness in the everyday and forgiveness on our worst day. And he never gets tired of that. There are endless resources in him to consistently give and offer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as, as I read this and, and I've, I've just studied this and been in this this last week, I realize how quickly I forget this and how much it's still about me. It's still much about the accounts, Father. And my prayer is that in these moments, um, now and in, in the, in the, as, even as we, we rest our head on the pillow, Lord, that we are reminded and we find full satisfaction. We found full, our fullness, our, everything that we need and the fact that our accounts with you are full. And out of those relationships, we're able to love and to forgive, Lord. And so I pray for those that we do have those difficult relationships, whether that be friends, enemies, family, Lord, that... Uh, that we are reminded if there is something within us that we feel inadequate, Lord, that out of what you have done for us allows us to forgive others, Father. So I pray for those relationships, and I thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.